Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Swinney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Well, another big tech IPO is coming. Palantir Technologies, a widely anticipated IPO, is uh, making its way through the process here. It's a fascinating story, fascinating company, fascinating founders and names as well. To help us bring us up to speed on all things Palantir, we welcome Max Chafkin, Features Editor for Bloomberg Businessweek. Max, thanks so much for joining us here. I thought I saw your piece and I love the headline. Uh, Palantir is really no friend to Silicon Valley, are they? Well, it's kind of interesting, and and I and I have to correct you here. The it's actually a direct listing, which is oh, that's you know, right. I mean, it's very similar to an IPO, but yep. um, but but they're not issuing new shares, and this, this the shares are sold somewhat differently. Um, kind of new hot phenomenon in Silicon Valley. You know, it, it's interesting the question because Palantir for years was basically the Silicon Valley defense contractor. That was kind of the pitch. You know, Peter Thiel. Uh, the the uh, venture capitalist entrepreneur founder of PayPal uh, was the you know basically came up with the idea and the, and and this company was pitching you know the U.S. government for a long time as the like we're going to bring kind of Silicon Valley thinking um, and try to displace some of these uh, entrenched uh, defense contractors you know like names like Raytheon. Now um, what's happened is Palantir is now one of those defense contractors and we're seeing sort of a pivot where where as Silicon Valley has sort of uh, as things have become polarized in Silicon Valley, you know, obviously a lot of liberals um, uh, who are who are very against Trump uh, are, are work at work at these Silicon Valley companies. Palantir is kind of trying to chart a slightly different path. Is there an option for somebody to get involved? So private equity or one of these SPACs that's uh, roaming around the place? So it's Palantir. I mean, the, the direct listing is happening, although they did today just uh, you know, update the date. It was supposed to happen on September 23rd. It looks like now the, the stock will begin listing on the 29th. But but this is happening in the next, you know, this month. Um, so so this is definitely not a not a SPAC situation. Or although I, I suppose you know anything could happen. I mean, one thing that is interesting here is Palantir is kind of typically described as a startup, uh, but it's been around for a really long time. It's been around for 17 years, um, which is, again, another way in which it's not, not exactly a conventional Silicon Valley company. And they've raised, you know, a ton of late stage capital. So so it's not it's it's a little bit different than, than a conventional startup. And that's actually one of the reasons we've seen some skepticism uh, from investors and analysts, because they've been around for a really long time um, and are still not making any money. So. Max, what's the feeling on the street as to this company? We've seen some really well-received technology uh, new issues uh, this year. Is there a sense that this is a stock that big tech investors need to own? Well, you, you have a really wide range of, of sort of expectations and valuations, which is part of a, a feature of, of these direct listings. Um, but, but, but kind of what's driving the, the conversation uh, is basically COVID. So Palantir, in many ways, COVID is a great opportunity for, for this company. What, what Palantir does is data integration. They take um, numbers from all different parts of businesses or, 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 or governments, and they make it easy for companies, governments to make sense of them. So if you think about, you know, the typical things that these, these large corporations are dealing with with COVID in terms of, like, looking at where are the outbreaks what, what kind of PPE do I have? How do I allocate that PPE? How do I, you know, project sales? 
that's all stuff that Palantir um, can do. So, so that, and, and so that's kind of like a new source of demand. And as we report in our story, you know, they, they've done a lot of new deals uh, over the last six months or so. And, you know, cost has been a huge thing for this company where uh, they were spending huge amounts of money flying these, um, you know, sort of pseudo salespeople. They're, they call them forward deployed engineers all around the world, pitching the software, you know, spending a fortune basically selling this stuff. And now they're doing that, you know, obviously over Zoom like, like the rest of us. So that's kind of a huge um, sort of change in the business. Now, it's not totally clear how sustainable it is, how big those deals are going to be. And you have this big uh, wild card in the uh, 2020 election. Palantir is a company that has done very well um, over the last four years uh, with the current administration. And, you know, obviously no guarantees that that, that continues um, past November. Peter Thiel obviously owns a lot of it, Max. Uh, is there any suggestion that he will sell some of what he owns? Um, I don't think we know exactly how, how that's all going to shake out. There is an immediate lockup where, where the investors are, are prevented from selling you know, most of their stock uh, within the first couple of months. Um, you know, I, I think I, the, the nature of the direct listing is you would expect existing investors, especially these big investors, and Peter Thiel owns a lot of this stock, as you say, uh, to to start, you know, paring down their, their holdings, especially if we see it, you know, open up with a big valuation, because, you know, it'll, that'll suddenly be like a lot of uh, Peter Thiel's net worth. Um, and, and the other thing that's kind of interesting is Palantir has a very unusual structure. So it's, it's, it's there's, um, there's a trust, and that trust has, has three sort of main shareholders, one of whom is Peter Thiel. This group can basically control the company even if they start paring down um, their shares. So, so, so there are a lot of reasons why, why you would think that some of these large shareholders will at least start to pare back, if not, if not sell kind of a substantial amount um, in the next year or so. So, Max, I hate to ask a nitpicky question, but does this company make any money? <laughs> uh, no, as I said, uh, uh, the the loss uh, the losses have been huge. Uh, you know, off the top of my head, I think you know something like four hundred million dollars last year, uh, four hundred five hundred million dollars last year um, on seven eight hundred million in revenue. Um, uh, but the the crucial thing is the losses have gotten a lot better. Uh, if, if you look at it, their their revenue went has gone way up first half of twenty twenty as compared to um, 2019, and the losses have gone way down. And that's because of, of partly because of COVID and partly because uh, other parts of their business were doing really well. They've got this huge contract um, with the Army, and, and that money is starting to come in. So the bet, the long-term bet for investors, is that, you know, this is just the beginning, and these trends are con- going to continue. And, of course, the kind of bear case is that, look, this is a, a, a quote-unquote startup that's been around for 17 years, and it's still losing huge amounts of money. You know, what makes us think that this is going to that this is gonna get any better in the future? Max, it's a great read, and thanks for coming on and explaining all about Palantir to us. Looking forward to hearing more from you on that score. Max Chafkin, author of Palantir is Bad-Mouthing Big Tech While Taking Its Tech Public. He's also Bloomberg Businessweek Features Editor. And you can follow him on Twitter as well. Very interesting guy to follow on Twitter. Well, the markets have certainly taken their cue from the Federal Reserve. The Fed has been pumping liquidity into this marketplace, providing a backstop for risk assets uh, across the board, particularly the equity assets. The question is, where do we go from here? Is 
fiscal stimulus needed for a next move up. How at risk is this market? Yousef Abbasi, global market strategist for Stone X Group, uh, joins us. Uh, Yousef, thanks so much for joining us here. I mean, there's so many variables for investors to discount here. Just over the next couple of months, we've got the elections, we've got potential fiscal stimulus, and of course, we have the path of the pandemic and potential uh, vaccines. How do you put all that together into a market call? Yeah, I mean, it's it's incredibly difficult, right? You, you've highlighted several factors, and some of which are exogenous, and we're not used to really dealing with. So it does become a little bit challenging. Now, we are fairly cautious into year end. We understand that most of the market risks have really been dulled by the Fed and the level of stimulus that has been conducted. But at the same time, there is a rebasing going on in the market currently. And you have to listen to what the market is currently telling you. The NASDAQ is poised to have its worst month since uh, December 2018. And who can forget that? massive unwind sell-off we experienced then. So you have to listen to this market right now. And from where sentiment is lying, we are searching for leadership. And unfortunately, we haven't found it. So in terms of moving forward with regards to a vaccine, with regards to a second wave, you really don't understand exactly where they are. And prognosticators can try to predict which comes first. But the reality is right now, the best way to play this is to be cautious, have some cash ready on the sidelines, and probably take a barbell approach to your investment right now. What would the other side of the barbell be? So if you are looking at how we would want to play this barbell, we think that you should be taking advantage of looking at some of the very high-quality tech names that have seen pullbacks that have basically given back almost the entire Q3 move. And if you're looking at those franchises, we think that there are interesting opportunities to buy them on weakness, and that will position you well on the growth side. On the value side, we think that you cannot ignore the fact that the materials and industrials have really been the sectors that haven't really broken trend while the rest of the market seemed to be risking. And that's in large part due to the fact that there is still an overwhelming demand for hard commodities and hard assets. So gold, copper, silver continue to act well, and those materials names continue to be a play we want to be in in value. Also in value, we'd like to complement that by looking at the maligned banks. The sector is unloved, underowned obviously going through a round two of a stress test. But we think most financial investors understand that capital returns aren't going to return until 2021 anyway. And we think that if we do get a vaccine, these banks will be poised to come back to be able to maybe even unwind some of the reserves they've built and put those back into earnings. Yusuf, we have uh, elections coming up November 3rd. There's a lot of concern, or I would say some growing concern in the marketplace that to the extent that this is a contested election and an election that could be contested for a long period of time uh, heading into next year, that that could be a real, real issue for the market. How do you figure that into your calculus? Yeah, so consensus thought right now is that this will be a contested election, right? So considering the fact that we've seen the market kind of understand that for at least a few weeks now and start to digest it, we've seen investors, rather than really taking risk off dramatically in the market, attempt to hedge by going long, you know, VIX options, uh, out-of-the-money VIX calls uh, were a popular way to hedge. We saw sizable trades in that over the past two weeks. So I would say, you know, people are thinking about a volatility move rather than taking money off the table for equities. And I think to some extent that speaks to the fact that people do believe that the Fed has dulled some of the impacts of these risks. So, yes, at this point I think everyone on the street or the majority of the street is expecting a contested election I think the aftermath is certainly going to be interesting. 
smooth transition of powers in question, potential civil unrest is in question. You can argue that some of these could potentially be inflationary factors. So in the calculus, this is one of the reasons we do want to keep that barbell approach. We want to keep you exposed to tech and growth in case we see those disinflationary or deflationary factors, which should help multiples. And we want you exposed to value because if there is any semblance, even transitory inflation, you could see multiples start to come in and you could see value start to outperform. Where do you see inflation coming from? So this is a great question, right? Because the Fed has been inept at uh, impacting inflation. So the real potential for inflation comes from fiscal stimulus, right? So if we do get another fiscal stimulus package, that could be inflationary. Now, the odds of one happening before an election have dwindled dramatically. But we think about stimulus in another way. And I think this is how people have to think about it as well. Corporates are going to want to control their supply chains more adequately on the back of COVID-19. We are going to see a move with regards to reonshoring. We are going to see a shift in the economy, and reonshoring is going to be one of those places where we see more investment in the U.S. economy, and we could potentially start to see inflation from that. Now, that's not to say that we're not already seeing inflation in hard asset prices, right? Food prices, for example, we're already seeing signs of inflation. So it just depends on if that inflation hits the real economy significantly enough, what will the Fed do then, right? And I understand average inflation targeting clearly tempers expectations, and they can point to transitory inflation. But still, the impact to asset prices might be real. All right. Well, thank you very much. Much appreciated there from StoneX Group. We were talking to Yusuf Abbasi, who's global market strategist, this on a day where we're not seeing too much movement in the markets, but what movement we are seeing is lower. And as Dave Wilson said earlier on, really wait till the close of trading today to see all that action. It is time for Bloomberg Opinion. We're joined by Sarah Halzak, Bloomberg Opinion retail columnist, out with a fascinating uh, column just recently talking about or comparing Amazon uh, to Walmart. And these companies are increasingly looking a lot like each other. I think back to the news where Amazon's opening up uh, a thousand small delivery facilities in suburbs and cities. It kind of putting out a, a kind of a footprint that is replicating in some respects Amazon and of course Amazon uh, getting in uh, Walmart getting into uh, kind of a prime like business Sarah thanks so much for joining us here talk to us about your column here and how these two companies are starting to kind of look like mirror images of one another exactly so with these mini warehouses that Amazon is rolling out they're effectively making a concession to a premise that Walmart has held for a long time, which is that it matters to be close to your consumer when it comes to delivery speed. So Walmart has 4,000 stores around the country, and they've been using those in particular to deliver groceries quickly. And they have stores, 90% of the U.S. population lives within 10 minutes of a Walmart. You can see the benefit of being close to the consumer right in the towns where they live, as opposed to in some far-flung warehouse uh, far down the highway. And so by making these mini warehouses, Amazon is kind of agreeing with that as a business model and embracing it. How much development of technology has Walmart been doing behind the scenes, Sarah? Because it seems to me that suddenly it's trying to be and is being a technology company. It also made a bid for part of the TikTok US operations, remember? Exactly. So digital advertising in particular has been a big focus for Walmart recently. They believe that they have a big trove of data on their customers, both based on what they do in stores and online, 
160 million people shop with Walmart every week. That's a lot of data. And they see how Amazon has become a really big force in the digital advertising space based on the data and information they have about their customers. And so Walmart wants to replicate something similar, uh, become a digital advertising juggernaut, and in turn have this more profitable revenue stream that helps offset some of the expense that they're incurring as more and more of their business moves online. So Walmart's business, Sarah, it's it's amazing, their digital business. I started really following closely several years ago, and they really, after some fits and starts, they've really seemed to get their uh, .com platform really ramping up and putting up you know solid 20% plus kind of growth. Um, where do they think their digital business is going to ultimately end up? They haven't offered a lot of specifics on that, but I think that they see grocery as the key to winning in that space. It's an area where they really feel like they have an advantage to Amazon, and it's also an area they really simply cannot afford to lose on. 56% of Walmart's U.S. business is grocery, so they cannot feed market share there to Amazon. And that's where this Walmart Plus membership that they just rolled out comes into play. Grocery is sort of the centerpiece of it. For $98 a year, you get unlimited free grocery deliveries, and that is clearly a bid to, among other things, hang on to their grocery shopping customers and continue to be the leader in in that space. Will the other companies be able to stave off the Walmart advance? And I'm talking about Amazon, I suppose, mainly. I think so. Look, a Walmart Plus, I suspect what it's not going to do is make a dent in Prime membership. The 150 million people who already have Prime memberships are locked into that ecosystem. And, of course, that ecosystem is loaded up with all sorts of other goodies, you know, TV programming, music, that kind of thing. So I don't think Walmart Plus is going to have that much success peeling away Prime members. I think its key function is going to be hanging on to the people who already shop at Walmart and giving them a real value play. Also, the pandemic has brought a lot of new people to online shopping, or at least mean people who are infrequent online shoppers into more frequent online shoppers. And if those people are just now considering some kind of membership setup, uh, Walmart has a good chance of, of uh, getting those shoppers business. It's interesting. Walmart, you know, I, I see they're kind of raising the pay for some of uh, their employees. And of course, Walmart's a huge, huge employer in the U.S. What do you make of that? Is that kind of a competitive response to what's going on in the marketplace? Mm-hmm. I think so. I think that, uh, and Walmart has found over the years, look, a, a number of years ago when the economy was first starting to turn and they made a decision to raise their minimum wage, they clearly saw the benefits of that in terms of talent retention. And they had this big focus at that time called Clean Fast Friendly, trying to make their stores uh, better soft and trying to make them less messy. And it really worked. When they started paying people more, they really saw the results of that and it showed up in their comparable sales growth numbers. And I think that lesson from a few years ago is fresh in their minds. And so as they approach this kind of unprecedented time of the pandemic and are trying to address all this demand in their stores and their website, they see pay as a way uh, to get the best out of their employees. Right, but is it not a little bit more complicated, Sarah, in the sense that they are taking out complete layers of management by doing this? So they're going to have teams in stores, you know, pods, if you like, of workers, and everybody will have to do various different tasks, whereas I'm sure before, if you reached managerial level, there were certain tasks that you wouldn't have to do. Uh, and presumably, they, if there are certain fewer ranks of managers, that's the potential right there for lower salaries across the board. 
Sure, that's a good point. And I think it's also worth pointing out that these pay increases they just announced, I think only affect something like 100,000 workers. Of one and a half million, yeah. Exactly, exactly. So, uh, you know, this is this is not, uh, we, we shouldn't be lollipops and rainbows about it. Um, there, You know, clearly it is only affecting a small portion of the workforce. And I think what you pointed out and, and the, the relatively small pool of workers that are being affected here is worth pointing out too. Sarah, any feedback or any color on how back to school was or is in terms of retail sales? Yeah, so I think what we've heard anecdotally from retailers is that uh, it seems like it's happening later. And that makes a lot of sense because there was so much uncertainty, right, about what school was going to look like. Was your kid going to be going back in person? Were they going to be going back digitally? And clearly that affects whether you need to buy, say, a lunchbox or a laptop. Um, And so the theory is that uh, some of that spending that typically would have happened in July or August uh, was moving to late August or perhaps September. Um, So that was that was certainly different. And I think now we get into this uh, strange time period where retailers are really trying to encourage people to do their holiday shopping early. They're trying to move holiday shopping more into October in order to be able to thin out crowds and make people feel comfortable social distancing in their stores. And so now I feel like we're approaching this strange time where it's going to be both delayed back to school shopping and an attempt at early holiday shopping, which makes for a a merchandising challenge for these retailers. And it's anyone's guess how they'll manage it. Sarah, thank you so much. I think it's also worth pointing out that uh, Walmart had been sending warnings to Washington as well, but it doesn't appear Washington is listening to Walmart, the biggest employer in the country, on what will happen when you know stimulus runs out for the average American. Sarah Holzak, always keeping us up to date on the latest retail. She is Bloomberg opinion columnist and uh, part of the Bloomberg editorial staff as well. And we thank her very much. Paul, do you live within how many minutes of a Walmart, do they say? Uh, I'm pretty close to a Walmart, um, but um, it's just extraordinary. You know, they're obviously they're everywhere, and they're just massive when you go in there. Mm, pallets of uh, of merchandise, amazing. Yes. Well, we will continue to monitor retail. Obviously, it's one of the first channels for uh, economic data. Well, the tech cold war between the U.S. and China is heating up once again. Uh, the Commerce Department, the U.S. Commerce Department. Uh, prohibiting WeChat and TikTok transactions. To get more color, we welcome Nick Wadhams, foreign policy reporter for Bloomberg News. Uh, He joins us from Washington, D.C. on the phone. Nick, thanks so much for joining us here. Give us the latest on what is going on here in terms of TikTok, WeChat, and all things tech. Well, it was a bit of a surprise this morning when the Commerce Department came out and and said, uh, listen, uh, WeChat, we're basically shutting you down, and TikTok, you're not going to be able to uh, get any updates on uh, on your phone if you have that app. You may not even be able to download it if you're a new user. Um, but uh, what we also learned was that uh, this deadline that's been talked about a lot about the, the need for a, a sale of TikTok uh, to uh, U.S. investors, uh, which was really looming for September 20th, uh, we now see that in some ways that was a fiction, and actually they have until November 12th to wrap that up. So uh, two contrasting forces going on. One is it looks like WeChat in the U.S. is really being uh, almost totally neutered. Uh, but the other, uh, it, it looks like Oracle and the others who are looking to uh, make a big investment in TikTok uh, do actually have a couple months to pin this thing down. How are the two in sync? I mean, um, 
I don't understand how Oracle can be given the chance to fix social media, if you like, in the United States, and WeChat is being banned. It's a it, it's a great question. <laughs> I, I mean, essentially, what what you're seeing here is uh, action by this administration on two fronts. One is uh, the belief that TikTok poses a threat to user data. There is a heavy, heavy political element to that. The president was extremely upset uh, a couple months ago when. TikTok users basically spoofed his campaign by pretending that they had bought a bunch of tickets to a rally in uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, and it turned out uh, not to be the case. Uh, so, so there's that whole element. To the, the TikTok case is, is very, very political. And then there's also the concern about WeChat, which is uh, a more specific uh, concern about what user data, what uh, financial data uh, uh, users' private information is being hoovered up by China uh, and sent back there because WeChat obviously is a is a messaging app, but it's also primarily used uh, essentially to do every transaction you would need to do in China, so payments and things like that. So you you sort of see both things happening at once. Oracle uh, may come in with a uh, to buy a, a stake in in WeChat, uh, sorry, in TikTok, um, but that's something that we, it now looks like. Yeah, we've got we've got a little more time, and uh, the president has staked so much of his reputation to that. We've got Stephen Nuchin working behind the scenes desperately to get that deal done. So, any sense of what a response could be coming out of Beijing? Uh, that is what we've been chasing. That is that is the big unknown. Will China look? You know this this TikTok. Demand uh, would ha- has to come due after the election, so there's maybe a hope by Beijing that uh, Joe Biden would then start to signal that he's going to de-escalate. Uh, but China has always responded in the last several months as the U.S. has pressed. Uh, China has pushed back, so a lot of things could happen. W- what happens to Apple, for example? Uh, huge operation gets a huge amount of its sales in China. Could could China put the squeeze on on Apple and limit it in some way? Um, could it ban the sale of TikTok? Uh, there, there had been some openness overnight. We were getting signals that China was actually uh, much more open than we had earlier thought about the idea of ByteDance uh, selling off a big portion of TikTok. China could reverse itself and scuttle this whole process and just say, no, we're not going to do it. Um, so still very much in the air. And China has shown in the past that they're willing to hit hard, uh, hit the U.S. very hard. Um, so really anything is on the table at this point. Nick, why would Oracle agree to buy something that's banned? I mean, doesn't this change the whole arithmetic for Oracle, or is Oracle deciding that this is going to be a temporary ban on the part of President Trump of TikTok? Well, Wilbur Ross said this morning, listen, if the, if the deal goes through, then uh, all our concerns about TikTok uh, are taken off the table. So a huge caveat there. They're They're essentially saying, Here's what will happen to TikTok if the deal doesn't doesn't go through. So some minor inconveniences now. If if you have the app, you won't be able to get updates. All that goes away if the deals goes through. So they're really signaling we are we are going to make it very very difficult to you for you to use WeChat, and that's not going away. TikTok, on the other hand, has a huge escape hatch, which is the Oracle deal. It's it's Nick, so strange. Yeah, just extraordinary uh, what's going on here. Nick Wadhams, Bloomberg Foreign Policy Reporter. Thanks so much for joining us. Ivani, just think about some of these things. TikTok, you know, it's it's not quite our demo, Ivani, uh, <laughs> but, you know, for that kind of... I've downloaded four- it. I don't know about you. Yeah. <laughs> the 14 to 24 demo, it is just huge, and it is a massive platform, huge growth. 
um, you know, it's there's a lot of people watching what's going on here, and it's hard to separate the political from what really is potentially viable uh, national security. Well, it really is fascinating how it became innovative. I mean, we had all of these other social media platforms, and suddenly TikTok is doing something just that slight bit differently, and it is engaging young users yes. in politics, Paul, in political activity. It's pretty yeah, amazing. Yeah, it's, it's just amazing with the younger demo. So it'd be fascinating to see how this uh, plays out. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.